Welcome to another Godcast from Whosoever, an online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians. I'm Candace Shalou Hodge, the founder and editor of Whosoever. Thank you for joining us. Education is the key to fostering understanding of any oppressed or marginalized group. In this Godcast, we'll explore two very different approaches to educating others about diversity. First, we'll explore what happens when the Ku Klux Klan gives a rally and clowns show up. We'll talk with one of the Ku Klux Clowns who schooled the Klan earlier this year in Knoxville, Tennessee. Also, being gay, lesbian, bisexual, and Christian has its challenges, but when you're transgender, there are often a whole new set of challenges to reconcile gender identity and faith. We'll talk with author and consultant Vanessa Sheridan about how she's working to educate not just the church, but corporations about the transgender experience. And we'll wrap it up with a meditation moment. Speaking of education, whosoever has been dedicated to educating our community about God's radical love for them for the past decade or so, to continue that commitment to education, whosoever is now offering live teleseminars. Our first teleseminar on spiritual self-defense for GLBT Christians was a great success, so we've planned more, including a two-part teleseminar on homosexuality and the Bible. We'll cover the Old Testament and homosexuality in a teleseminar planned for Thursday, January 31st at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The seminar will be hosted by myself and Reverend Paul Turner, the senior pastor at Gentle Spirit Christian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Participants will get a packet of notes and other material when they sign up. There is a suggested donation to whosoever to join the teleseminar, and we hope you'll support our work in this way while we support your need for spiritual growth and education. To order the audio of past teleseminars and to get details on how to register for upcoming seminars, go to our website at whosoever.org slash seminars. We hope you'll join us. Earlier this year, a young white couple was carjacked, raped, and killed in Knoxville, Tennessee. Several black men and one black woman were arrested and charged with the killings. The murders caught the attention of the Ku Klux Klan, who said the killings were race-based. Local prosecutors disagreed and refused to lodge hate crime charges against the suspects. Last May, the Klan staged a rally in Knoxville to protest the decision. What made the protest extraordinary, however, were the counter-protesters. They were literally a bunch of clowns. The Ku Klux clowns, as they called themselves, donned white dresses, face paint, and spongy clown noses, and parodied the Klan's cries of white power, gleefully misunderstanding the phrase and turning it into white powder and and even wife power. The protesters were part of a direct action training organization called Mountain Justice Summer. The group normally protests at the site of strip mining mountaintop removal projects, but this year they decided to use their skills on the Klan. I talked with one of the organizers of the Clown protest. Because of the harassment the group has faced from the Klan, he preferred not to give his real name, instead going by the pseudonym Dr. Hyena. I asked Dr. Hyena where the idea to protest as clowns began. That was just uh, me and my attorney, uh, Chris Irwin, um, who is all about giving his name. Okay. <laughs> and the clan already has his name and address. But um, we were hanging out in Knoxville talking about this clan meeting coming up and just, you know, thinking like, you know, we, there's always a counter rally of furious uh, anti-racists 
that are like, get out of town, you mm-hmm. racist scum, mm-hmm. you know, and the Klan and the Nazis love that. They can just stand there and scream anger and rage across the street back and forth all day long. Mm-hmm. So instead of, we're just trying to come up with a way of instead of feeding their desire for confrontation and anger and all that, uh, we could not allow them to make us angry, you know, and and who better than clowns, because, like, we figured we could be this group of innocent clowns Uh that just don't understand about the hate. Right. Like, it's just, we thought they were comedians, we thought this was a white dress and pointy hat themed street party, (laughs) and we love an excuse for a party, you know? So we came down, we put white dresses on and made pointy hats out of the funny pages and had white face on and and big cushy clown noses and just appreciated everything they had to say to us, laughed hysterically. We'd been practicing group laughter for days. We actually got pretty good at like having a totally hysterical breakdown every time they tried to say something to enrage us. Uh Uh-huh. And we got everything wrong. We didn't understand, like, what, what they were saying. But we were trying to, to like, gain their acceptance and approval. And we, we couldn't get the white power thing quite right. Mm-hmm. We, were doing, we tried white flower <laughs> and uh, tight shower and wife power. And, that was my favorite. <laughs> yeah, and we, we had a bunch. And uh, we'd, we'd chant, you know, wife power, wife power, wife power. <laughs> We'd be like, did we get it? Did we get it? Did we get it? And they'd be just staring at us with disapproval and be like, we're wrong again. And then we'd be so disappointed and just crestfallen. And we'd mourn for about a minute and then we'd forget and start having a great time again and make another attempt after a while. And they'd try to explain to us from across the street, screaming themselves hoarse, why we're supposed to be angry and, and what they're really about. And we'd try to pay attention, but clowns have a very short attention span. Sure. And we would always get distracted at a crucial moment, right, when they were about to start making us, like, getting past our ability to stay in character, mm-hmm. start to make us angry. We'd just get distracted and misunderstand and just be like, you're going to have to start again, you know. <laughs> but but we we never tried to be laughing at them, like kind of like, you know, bully, like, you know, you peed your pants on the playground kind of laughing. Yeah. We were trying to avoid that completely and and just be like, you're the funniest comedians that ever came to Knoxville. This is hysterical. Racism is ridiculous. You can't possibly be serious. Mm-hmm. And it just about killed some of them, it seemed like. <laughs> they lost their voices and gave up and left with their heads hanging low. It was beautiful. So they had they had no idea how to how to counter what you were doing. And they had no idea. They tried every. They tried you know screaming all the insults they could and all the things that always make the people across the street very angry. Mm-hmm. But we just we were immune because we just we didn't have that capacity. Like we just agreed before the event that once we got into character, we weren't coming out of character. Yeah. And we were incapable of understanding these concepts of hate and rage and all that just meanness. We were just, we assume that everybody else wants to have a good time, too. <laughs> do, you, do you think the, the other side 
got an inkling of it? Do you do you, do you think that, that they really understood how effective you were being against them? Well, I think some of them uh, realized that they'd been trumped, <laughs> but um, we're not talking about the most intelligent. Group of <laughs> well, <people>. that's true. <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, collectively about as smart as a bag of hammers. Mm-hmm. They, um, they really. Uh, like like we were wearing white dresses, right? Yeah. You know, to try to parody the, you know, the white robes of the Ku Klux Klan, mm-hmm. which they were not wearing, which may have been because we advertised in advance that, you know, anybody that wanted to be a clown could come join us, put on a white dress, and let's go. <laughs> so they didn't want to confuse themselves. So, yeah, with it you. might be that because yeah. of that, they didn't put the, the uh, robes on, yeah. but... Maybe they didn't hear about it, and they're just not into the robes anymore. They were mostly wearing, you know, black T-shirts mm-hmm. with racist slogans on them and stuff. Maybe they didn't really care for drag. Right, well, that's the thing. Is like <laughs> a lot of them. I don't think they understood why we were wearing the dresses. They thought that it was like a gay protest across the street. Oh, really? <laughs> They'd make comments, you know, like that guy in drag. You know, it's like, wait, you don't even get the joke, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if you know that, like, two and a half weeks later, there was another competing group of Klansmen and Nazis no. that came to Knoxville in almost the, the same location, like a block away. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have an army of clowns assembled. But my, I, I spoke to my attorney, um, and he got in touch with um, the police department, who... We were already in their favor because of the clown event and got permission to get a sound system uh, across the street Mm -hmm. from their rally. And uh, they expected clowns because they'd heard about the the clown event and it it had been all over the Internet and stuff. And people had been laughing about it all over the place, making a big deal out of it. They were expecting clowns. I went around town and made a few appearances here and there with white face on mm-hmm. to reinforce their expectation that they would be facing clowns. And then at the rally, it was just the people that always show up, you know, the counter rally. There weren't any clowns at all. But all of their signs, that they that all the, the clan and Nazi signs were like a clown topic. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. Like, they had all these signs, anti-clown signs. So uh, first you get them by showing up, and then you right. get them by not, them by not showing up. <laughs> and, and we had a sound system when we played black love music, like Stevie Wonder and stuff, and tried to have a dance party across the street. We got a lot of the crowd dancing several times. They had a sound system, but they were in front of a, a convex building. Mm. So our sound system was echoing against the back of their heads. They really couldn't drown us out. <laughs> uh, there was, it looked like we were going to have some heart attacks across the street that time, too. And, again, they wound up fleeing down. And I, I got a feeling they're not going to want to go to Knoxville really anymore. It's important for the GOBT community to take note of the clown's success against the Klan. This group of clowns effectively found Jesus' third way, practicing the art of putting your opponent off balance without humiliating or dehumanizing them. We can learn a lot from these clowns, and we'll explore Jesus' third way in our meditation moment coming up.
Some footage of the clown rally is posted on YouTube. There is a link to the video as well as a link to an article about the rally at our Godcast blog at whosoeverpods.blogspot.com. If you want to learn more about Mountain Justice Summer, you can go to their website at mountainjusticesummer.org. Vanessa Sheridan has been speaking, writing, and researching on transgender issues since 1991. She's the author of Crossing Over, Liberating the Transgender Christian, published by Pilgrim Press in 2001. Since that book, Vanessa has widened the scope of those she's trying to educate about the transgender experience, working with corporations to bring understanding into the work world. Vanessa began our conversation with a bit of background about herself. I was raised um, in a uh, fundamentalist Southern Baptist home. Wow. Me too. The southeastern United States. Me too. <laughs> and I, st- I still love the Southern Baptists. Bless their pointed little heads. Uh-huh. They're, wonder- they're wonderful people, you know, and they mean well, but they're trapped in a, in my opinion, a toxic, uh, you know, religious belief system that yeah. uh, leaves little room for uh, diversity or, or human difference, and I feel sorry for them in that regard. Yeah. Um, I suppose, um, anyway, uh, as a child, I grew up in that particular kind of environment, and so... While I received, I think, a pretty good, you know, background in in biblical concepts and, and uh, certainly knowledge of the of the Bible and the Scripture and that sort of thing, I think that the overall belief system in which I was raised was not exactly conducive to the well being of a young transgender child, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was it was a struggle. Um, I remember I knew when I was two or three that I was different. I just wasn't really sure what that meant and uh, how to articulate that. And I figured out pretty quickly that this wasn't the kind of thing that you talked about, yeah. transgender, you know, uh, in a Southern Baptist environment. And so I pretty much just kept it to myself. And, of course, like many folks, I was convinced that I was the only person in the world who felt this way. And so uh, it was pretty alienating and pretty isolating in that regard. Um, right up through my teen years, I struggled with this. And um, it wasn't really until I, I reached adulthood that I began actively confronting my own transgender nature, particularly within the context of my Christianity. In your book, Crossing Over, Liberating the Transgendered Christian, you did combine that, that transgender identity with your Christian identity. It yes. What sort of challenges, because I know it's different for from uh, gay and lesbian and bisexual people to transgender people, so what challenges do, do transgender people face in Christianity? I know that uh, some of the differences between gay and lesbian folks and transgender people include the fact that gay and lesbian people are dealing primarily with a sexual orientation, while transgender folks are dealing with a gender identity. Mm-hmm. And I think those are two sides of the same coin, perhaps, but there are some nuances and some, and some distinctions that, that need to be made and addressed there. So from a Christian perspective, uh, I believe that some of the challenges include, first of all, getting past social preconceptions about who transgender people are, um, what motivates transgender people, how transgender folks can be compatible with Christian teaching, and how the love of God can encompass everyone, including GLBT folks 
you know, I, I think those are some of the challenges that we confront and that we face on a social level, on a you know, on a spiritual level, certainly on a, on a religious level, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, identifying ourselves as transgender Christians. So, don't transgender people often still have to deal with the idea of sexual orientation as well? If, if you're trans, if you're if you're making the transition from one gender to another, your sexual orientation basically remains the same, doesn't it? Well, that depends on the individual. It's mm-hmm. certainly, uh, you know, as we're learning, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity can be incredibly fluid concepts. Mm-hmm. They can be. I'm not saying they are for everyone, because I think everyone is different in that regard. Yeah. But they certainly can be. And yes, some folks' sexual orientation is fixed, and that's not going to vary no matter what gender they're identifying with. For other people, it's not quite so clear-cut. And I think we need to be respectful of that mm-hmm. and of that potential human variance and recognize that not everyone is built exactly the same way. Well, for gay and lesbian people, we get the, the regular clobber passages of, you know, Leviticus and Romans. Terror. Yeah, yeah. What biblical uh, opposition do transgender people face? Primarily Deuteronomy 22.5, which is, uh, you know, an Old Testament passage that deals with uh, women wearing men's clothing and men wearing women's clothing, which is called an abomination uh, in the Deuteronomic law. You know, there are lots of things that are called abominations in the Old Testament. Sure. I don't really want to get into parsing scripture here, but <laughs> no. uh, I think it's, it's probably safe to say that... Uh, while that particular scripture passage may have been referring to a specific group of people in a specific time, in a specific place, and for a specific reason, I'm not sure it applies to folks who identify as transgender in today's society. So I think that using the Old Testament scripture of Deuteronomy 22.5 to clobber transgender folks is just simply not fair and not accurate and something that we can, I think, look past and focus more on the biblical message of God's inclusive love for everyone. Well, if it's not biblical passages, passages that get as, get thrown at transgenders as much as they get thrown at, at gay or lesbian or bisexual people, what is the main objection in Christianity to transgender people? Well, I think that, again, we have to look at it from a larger social perspective. Transgender people are gender transgressors, hmm. and that is apparently a major sin in this culture. Uh, a lot of folks have a problem with that, uh, because that is where they base their their identity. They need some black and white standards in their world, and one of the major standards that many people adhere to is the fact that you've got males, you've got females, you've got men, you've got women, and there the twain shall meet. And, And when transgender people enter the picture, all of a sudden, that whole premise is turned upside down. When that happens, that gets people very upset. They don't know how to handle that. They don't know how to deal with that. It makes them very anxious and very fearful because they don't know that much about it. And you know what happens when people are afraid. They oh, tend yeah. to, uh, to strike out and to try to punish the ones who are making them be afraid. And so that's the, ra- the reason, I think, for the not only the social but the religious backlash against transgender folks. And again, another piece of that is that transgender folks are simply often lumped into the same category with lesbian and gay folks. Right. Uh, you know, because many people don't understand the differences between sex and gender, and therefore they just consider us all one big clump of um, hedonistic perverts. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, you know, we're sort of lumped in, you know, the same category as everybody else. So does it does it upset you at all, or or do you wish it were different that that transgender people are lumped in with with 
gay and lesbian people who basically are dealing with sexual orientation and not so much gender identity? Well, it doesn't upset me. Uh, you know, I love my lesbian and gay sisters and brothers, and I'm proud to be, uh, you know, associated with them. Uh, that's not the issue. Mm-hmm. The issue is that people are doing it based on a faulty premise. Sure. You know, people are making those assumptions based on misinformation, and that's what upsets me. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important, I think, to try to create resources and to educate people about the distinctions between sex and gender and and about sexual orientation and gender identity and all these other things so that people can make more informed statements and more informed decisions that are based in reality rather than on fear or misconceptions. Well, and you're moving toward that education piece. Uh, You actually are doing corporate consulting to uh, help transgender people in the workplace. Tell us how that evolved. In the context of writing the books that I've written on transgender spirituality, I began to realize that there's only so many folks you can read with, or reach, I mean, with religious books. And because of that, I decided to try to start looking into a potentially larger audience. And so I'm asking myself, well, where are are all the people? Well, most of them are at work. And so I decided, okay, maybe if I can make some inroads into the workplace, because frankly, social change often happens first in the workplace. We've Mm -hmm. seen that, uh, you know, uh, historically here in this country. Um, When women first entered the workplace, it was a major deal. But now women are accepted, at least for the most part, uh, in the workplace. Same thing was true with African Americans and other folks, you know, who who went to work um, as equals in in modern-day corporate America. And so we have seen some changes in that regard uh, on a social level that originated, you know, in the workplace. And so I said, okay, let me take some of this knowledge and uh, hopefully some of the expertise that I have, have gained in my study and my research about transgender issues and try to frame it in, in the context of uh, diversity consulting, diversity training, uh, speaking, writing, creating resources, that sort of thing for corporate America because I truly believe that transgender is the last great human rights issue left mm-hmm. to be addressed in corporate America. An encouraging sign is that in, in the year 2000, there were three Fortune 500 companies that had uh, gender identity as part of their non-discrimination policies, you know, their EEO policies. Today, there are over 150. That's that's about a third of the list. Mm -hmm. That's considerable growth in just seven years. And so there's an observable trend that's happening in corporate America, and I feel like I'm sort of uniquely positioned to be able to to make a difference in that regard by working with organizations, providing them with information, resources, uh, helping them craft policies and guidelines and provide training and that sort of thing to to help them be more aware of the transgender phenomenon as it impacts, you know, corporate America. But when you appear in front of groups, especially doing trainings uh, in corporate settings, what kind of reactions have you been getting? You know, it's interesting. I just did a training last week for a for the largest hospital in uh, the Minneapolis area, and I got the uh, evaluation uh, results back, and almost uniformly, they were really very positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't get any negative comments. I got a few helpful comments on how I could improve, which I'm always grateful for, but frankly, I think people are surprised 
that this issue is being taken seriously, you know, and that it's a legitimate area of business interest. And then they go, you know, once they're exposed to the information, they realize, wow, this really is significant. This really is important. It's something I probably should be paying a little bit more attention to. And I provide them with some tools and resources to help them do that. And they seem to be very receptive to it. So I'm very happy about that. And hopefully that trend will continue. What do you see as the biggest challenge for transgender people in the workplace? Well, I think educating folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just so important to do that because, frankly, most people don't know that much about the transgender phenomenon, and what they do know is often misinformed or it's been sensationalized, you know, by the media. You know, the media tends to portray us as either prostitutes or punchlines most mm-hmm. of the time, and and we try, you know. So I try very hard to dispel some of those myths. Uh, get people to look at transgender, you know, employees in particular as just folks who are there to do their jobs like everyone else and uh, focus on it from th- from that perspective. And you're writing a book about all of this. You're putting, you're putting together your knowledge in a, in a book. How is that going? Yes. Well, it's going really well. What I'm hoping is to create something of a, you know, without being disrespectful, something of a corporate Bible on, on this topic because what I've tried to do is take the transgender issue and approach it from a variety of different perspectives, uh, from the perspective of management, from the perspective of coworkers, from the perspective of the transgender worker, him or herself. And hopefully what it's going to do is provide a strong resource, you know, for uh, CEOs and, and management and HR and uh, diversity professionals and folks like that so that they can treat this issue with the legitimacy that it deserves. What's your prediction for the future of transgender acceptance? Are you are you positive now that you've been in the corporate area where mainly we're, we're all, <laughs> we spend most of our time anyway? Well, let me say I'm cautiously optimistic. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm optimistic because of the growing trend that we see, you know, certainly with those Fortune 500 statistics that I quoted a little earlier. Um, the gender identity piece is becoming more and more prevalent uh, in terms of corporate policies, and that's encouraging. Um, there are 12 states right now that uh, provide some sort of legal protection for transgender people, which means there are still 38 that don't. So. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic. Uh, you know, in just the last 15, 20 years, we have seen remarkable strides. At the same time, I realize that those are not universal, and we have a lot of work still to be done, uh, which, you know, fills me with a sense of urgency, frankly, in terms of trying to make a difference while we can. What's your prediction for transgender acceptance in the spiritual community? The spiritual community, particularly mainstream religion, tends to change with glacier-like slowness. Yep. <laughs> um, we've seen that. But, you know, I also know that this is not about us. This is about God, you know, and, and about God's work in our lives. And so I try very hard not to limit what God's able to do. Uh, I, I, t- I tried very hard to focus on the positive, focus on opportunities, focus on possibilities, and not dwell on the negatives because, frankly, if you start looking at the negatives too much, you can just get so mired in despair that you'll give up hope and throw up your hands and walk away. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do that. Uh, I love the church too much to walk away from it. I know I tried, and it didn't work. I had to come back. And my guess is I'll remain in the church for the rest of my life because I do love it so. And I, and I do see it as a great instrument that's capable of incredible good, you know, when it's in alignment with God's will. And I truly believe to the core of my being that God's will, you know, involves 
inclusion for every person, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. It is simply against everything that I know about the teachings and the ministry and, and the model that Jesus gave us to exclude people from the love of God. And until the church is able to wrap its, you know, collective brain around that concept and open its arms wide and say, our doors are open to everybody, no matter what, you know, until that happens, you know, we need to keep working. We need to keep struggling. We need to keep praying. We need to keep uh, doing whatever we can to, to make that happen. For more information about Vanessa and the services she provides, visit her website at VanessaSheridan.com. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A, Sheridan, S-H-E-R-I-D-A-N.com. With opposition, our society only gives us two choices, fight or flight. Jesus, however, urges us to find a third way, a way that opposes the violence and hatred in our world, but refuses to let the violence and hatred dictate our response. As Walter Wink writes in The Powers That Be, Jesus' third way is at once assertive and yet nonviolent. Wink's book is full of examples, but my favorite is a story of the residents of a squatter's camp in South Africa before the fall of apartheid. One day the police came with bulldozers to tear down the camp. They gave the women there five minutes to get their stuff and leave. But instead of packing up, the women stripped off their clothes and stood naked before the bulldozers. The police turned and fled, embarrassed by the women's nakedness. Wink writes, The powers that be literally stand on their dignity. Nothing deflates them more effectively than deft lampooning. By refusing to be awed by their power, the powerless are emboldened to seize the initiative, even where structural change is not immediately possible. This message, far from counseling an unattainable otherworldly perfection, is a practical, strategic measure for empowering the oppressed. This is why the Ku Klux Clowns were so effective that day in Knoxville. The Klan left their rally hoarse and dejected because they were deftly lampooned. For that moment, the powerless were emboldened against these racists. The racist structure of our society has not changed, but the oppressed now understand that they have a practical, strategic measure they can use to seize the initiative. We need not cower when racists or homophobes start their rants against us. We have the power of parody, the power of deft lampooning to put them in their place. We can strip naked before them and watch them run. In a like manner, Vanessa Sheridan has found the third way, focusing on educating those in the workplace about the issues of transgender people. Through her revolutionary educational practices, she's helping those who may have verbally or physically abused transgender people in the past come to a place of understanding, if not acceptance, of their co-workers' transition. Both the Clowns and Vanessa Sheridan are employing practical nonviolence as a way to educate and overcome the hatred and violence in our world. Wink says nonviolence is not a victory over the enemy, but the transformation that only love can affect. And that transformation may change us every bit as much as those whom we oppose. In short, he says, nonviolence invites miracles. May we find ways to invite such miracles into our lives today.
Thank you for joining us for another Whosoever Magazine Godcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can tell us your thoughts, comments, or suggestions by writing to us. Our email address is godcast at whosoever.org. Or you can leave comments at our blog at whosoeverpods.blogspot.com. The theme music for our program has been graciously provided by Adam Kiraly. Other music included samples from Cammon and Swan, Amoeba, and Heavy Mellow, all available from magnatune.com. If you'd like to join the Whosoever community, we have many online groups you can join for fun and support. You may find Whosoeverans in your area when you join our Rainbow Fish groups. To find out more, go to whosoever.org slash rainbowfish. If you're enjoying our podcast, we hope you'll consider making a monetary donation to our ministry. It takes money to produce and broadcast this program, and of course to keep our ministry on the web, where we've been a valuable resource to our community for more than a decade. You can donate by credit card by going to our website at whosoever.org slash donate, or you may send checks to Whosoever Ministries Incorporated, Post Office Box 727, Camden, South Carolina, 29021. Whosoever is a 501c3 nonprofit, that means all donations are tax deductible. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us again for our next Godcast, and may God bless you until we meet again.